three, two, one. And we are back with Charlie Robinson. If you haven't seen his Partners in Evil series on my channel, it went viral. I have got the link to that in the description box below this video, as are the links to Charlie's new book and all of his other stuff. So for those of you familiar with Charlie, you know he is here to titillate us with well-researched facts about the New World Order and also give us a mental flossing of our conditioned beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie. It's gonna be more like a like an enema of, of <laughs> this time around. <laughs> All the nonsense out. <laughs> coffee, one of those really awful coffee animals that people get. It's the truth. <laughs> I'm gonna bust the blood vessel here in a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself, Charlie, to sure. the people who are not familiar with your work? Sure. I am the host of Macro Aggressions podcast, which can be found on Apple, Spotify iHeartRadio, YouTube, and David Icke's video platform called Iconic. Um, I am the author of The Octopus of Global Control, which is a book that came out in 2017. And, and starting in 2018, right, right around the summer, um, I started working on a book with, with Jeff Berwick, who is the founder of The Dollar Vigilante. And he is the founder of Anarcapulco, which is the largest anarchist convention in the world that happens every February in Acapulco, Mexico. It's like, it's like the antithesis of the Davos uh, meeting. Like they've got all their maniacs and lunatics and Davos plotting to take over the world. And Jeff has all of his anarchist buddies uh, in Mexico in February trying to figure out how to undo all the things they're trying to, to plot out for us. So, so we started working on this book in... Um, so in 2018, I had a conversation with Jeff Berwick. I was on his show. And when we got done, he said to me, um, you know, this whole thing is coming down. And I was like, elaborate on that. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the financial system's a disaster. It's a house of cards. You know, the belief, the trust in the media and all this stuff. And we had a really good conversation about it. And, and at the end of that, he said, we should work on something together. Maybe we should write a book together. And I said, well, I'd like that. Let, let me try and figure out how, how that would, how I, I foresee that working. And so I wound up in Costa Rica right after that. And I had some time to, to think about where you know, how, how this could come about. And it stuck in my head what he said about this whole thing's coming down. And, it, and, and when I think of that, I think of a building, I think of, you know, a controlled demolition of a building. And of course, when I think of a controlled demolition of a building, I think of building seven on 9-11. And so I, 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 I put together the framework of how we would compare the way you take down an actual building, the steps that you that you put in place, like uh, pre-weakening the building, identifying the support columns, rigging the detonators, pushing down the plunger, you know, all these things. And we'll make that, we'll, we'll draw the comparison between how you take down a building and how you take down an empire. And then we, we started off with sort of a, a a little bit of an explanation about previous empires that have come and gone, uh, how they follow a very predictable cycle. When they get to the very end, you know, the same sorts of things happen where they, you know, they, they start, they expand the military to, to, to ways in which it's unsustainable, looking for conflicts around the world. Uh, they debase their own currency. They go into the bread and circuses component where they're trying to bribe their 
people, keep the people distracted so that they can't see what's actually happening to their, their civilization. Um, you know, so there's that there's tr the trust in the, in the government falls down the trust in the, in their version of the media always comes apart. And, uh, and, and the politicians tend to start stealing everything that's not bolted down. And that is of course, where we are right now, it, it, looking at this American empire, it, it, the signs are everywhere, but much like most empires that collapse, the people that are in, in the empire tend to be the last to know it's coming. You know, everyone else on the outside sees it for what it is. And historians, of course, look back on it and go, oh my God, the signs are everywhere. I mean, what did you think was going to happen when you did all these things? But the people are always caught off guard. And, and, and that's kind of where we are right now with this. And we hope that the book was going to be out by March. In fact, my biggest frustration with the book was that I wanted it to be out sooner. I wanted to to wake up people as fast as we could, but we stopped once the Corona situation happened and we waited and we said, this is going to be huge. We, we're going to need to incorporate this in the book. So we, we took about five months to see how it played out and then went back in and, and, uh, and finished it all off. We released it the Friday before the elections, which was like the last Friday in October. And, and by that Tuesday on election day, it was a number one bestseller. So it turned out in the end that the timing was great. Everybody, when, when you show them the book or when you talk about the concept of the book, everyone just goes, yeah, of course. I mean, of course it's coming down. Of course, it's so obvious now. So uh, it, it, we, we just kind of lucked out in, in, in that sense with the timing. Well, congratulations on the huge success of that. Thanks. Um, as well as time, I'm sure all of your hard work had a lot to do with it. And your series on this channel, Partners in Crime, if people have just yep. logged on now, um, really recommend it. I mean, Charlie details the Clinton crime family, uh, the Haiti scams, Maxwell, Epstein, just taking it to the next level of research. And um, before we get to the chapters of the book then, it's been a while since I actually spoke to you about Maxwell. Yeah. What is your perspective on that case right now with her incarcerated? It's a funny one, huh? We have we still haven't seen any pictures of her. <laughs> we still haven't seen... Uh, I, I, I don't know what's happening with her, to be honest with you. I don't know where it stands. I think the, the press isn't doing us any favors. They're not talking about it anymore. It seems they've got enough distractions to keep them busy that they don't need that one. Um, where I've, where my, my research has kind of taken me, uh, ironically, is, is off of Ghislaine Maxwell and more onto Isabel Maxwell, because what we've been seeing lately uh, is this push for the world, the, the Great Reset by the World Economic Forum and this fourth industrial revolution. And I've been on your show before. We talked about it a little bit, but the person that is involved in the technology component of the fourth industrial revolution, a high ranking person there is Isabel Maxwell. So if people are unsure about this great reset or who are these world economic forum people and can we trust them? The short answer is, well, they've got Isabel Maxwell running a component of it. So if that answers part of your question uh, that you cannot trust these people, they are, they have a much different version uh, of, of humanity that they want to see uh, than, than we want to see. And, and we, we talked about the AI creepy robot dolls that Epstein was financing and 
and his relationship with these scientists. And now we're starting to see, hey, some of these scientists have ties to the World Economic Forum. What's going on here? Why, why, is, this, uh, why is there this overlap? What, is, what, what did you have planned? Are we talking about the guys like Marvin Minsky and, and, uh, and the others at uh, Harvard that they financed, that Epstein put $30 million towards creating the culture, evolutionary dynamics uh, program at Harvard. Like, what is that? What does that mean? That sounds fancy. Well, it's, it's studying, um, you know, it's studying population shifts. And if you add this to the equation, what happens if you add a virus to the equation? What does that do to populations? How do we uh, control the population? It's a eugenics play, of course. And so, so we've got this sort of, um, we got a little taste of the World Economic Forum and what these technocrats have in store for us. When you when you find out that Epstein has connections to these guys, you're like, oh, hang on a sec. Okay, so it's they're in that group, right? We can pretty easily classify them as friends of Jeffrey. <laughs> so uh, th that's that's never a good thing. So we've so I, I don't know how that the the Ghislaine Maxwell situation is going to turn out, but I think that people are going to get a taste of what her sister, one of her sisters, is working on. Uh, and and I spoiler alert, it's not good. So do you think the usual suspects are going to get a pass? Then Wexner, we had um, Black and his seventy-five million contribution from to Epstein. We had, you know, all this heat on Prince Andrew still. I know we've hashed it out before, but do you, do you think that all these guys are going to get a pass or Maxwell could potentially implicate some bigger names than the lower level co-conspirators? Uh, it might be a it might be a combo. It might be that she gives up some 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 names that make it look like she's cooperating, but the the real big fish skate away. Um, don't know. Don't know. Don't know what what. I don't know what sort of legal maneuver, you would probably know better than me, what, what sort of legal maneuvers are available to her at this stage. Uh, talking, you know, I mean, look, if you get a reputation as being the person that's running your mouth, whether you actually are or whether they leak that out that you are, you know what that does to somebody. I mean, it puts a gigantic target on them, not that she doesn't have one already. So, um, you know, I, I, I still think that in the end, she will be silenced. It, it, however, that means, I don't know if that means she's going to have an accident or if that means that she's going to be, uh, you know, promised something, but, but I don't think that she'll be doing as much talking as, as we would prefer. But then again, if she was talking, I don't know that I'd believe it anyway, because she's, she's shown herself to be um, somebody that is devoid of anything resembling uh, a human emotion or, 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 or a, you know, trustworthiness. I mean, she's, she's a reprehensible person. So if she's ratting other people out, you know, it's like we have a credibility problem too, because who, who necessarily would believe her and who would trust her? She comes from a spy background. So she's going to know the things to say. This is not her first rodeo. She might be a psychopath, but she, by all accounts is a, is a high functioning one. So, so this is, this, this is day. And, and of course, let's not forget the fact that she has access to, um, to money and power and knows people in high places. So all of these things are, are a recipe for us being extremely let down, uh, by, by hoping anybody hoping for any sort of justice, but you know, I, 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 I don't see, I, I don't see this ending in a way where she walks out the door but but then again, um, but then again, it, it, it's 2020 and we are talking about the Epstein case. So anything is is really possible at this point. 
Did you hear the judge recently say that it couldn't be ruled out that Maxwell was a victim of Epstein? <laughs> Always the victim. Always the vi never the sociopathic psycho, you know, maniacs that they are. All if somebody else is always the victim, is treating them as, you know, is victimizing them. Maybe, maybe he was, but that doesn't that doesn't excuse any of her uh, tactics, the victimization that she did. But, but, um, but I'm yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I'm I'm really not. So you mentioned uh, my perspective on it then is, and some people may be curious about that now. So what I've been saying is that in the beginning of a case like this, a complex case, it takes time to get all your legal discovery. So her and her lawyers are going over all the legal discovery, all the evidence they've got against her. And I believe that she's has access to a computer to do that. And then what that leads to then is the battle of the motions. So her lawyers try to suppress evidence, the opposition try to introduce more evidence and increase the amount of evidence. And, you know, one's, one side's portraying her as um, a victim and a saint, and the other side's going to portray her as the Antichrist. And a year in, once all this battles of the motions stuff has settled down, then her legal team would take stock and assess her plea bargaining power. So right now, filing motions, trying to gain plea bargaining power. So far, lots of the rulings have gone against her, so she's actually been losing plea bargaining power. And then as it gets closer to the trial, that's not going to happen. She's going to take a plea bargain based on the strength of where she's at at that point in time. I don't think she's going to be um, in a very good position of strength at all. And even if she does offer to name the big names, CIA or NSA or someone's just going to come in and say, shut her up, you know, send her off to prison. Yeah. Um, we can't go there in the interest of national security. Yeah. I wonder how the Nexium case plays into this too, because she's got to be taking a look at what happened there. I mean, they threw the book at Keith Ranieri. So, and of course it's not obvious, it's not the same thing, but it's, it's close. It's, it's elite pedophile rings being, you know, conducting uh, reprehensible business. So she's got to take a look at that and say, well, you know, if the if a Bronfman's in prison now and uh, and Ranieri's there for for forever, um, it's got to at least cross her mind that that could be an outcome for her. So for, so maybe uh, maybe a dose of reality or maybe just a little bit of uh, terror in her life uh, while she stews in a prison cell. That might not be the worst thing in the world. All right. So segueing into the chapters, you mentioned never-ending war, Orwellian style how does the election of biden factor into what you're projecting is going to happen with the never-ending war perspective yeah i think that biden is a sprint towards those sorts of things whereas trump is like a slow jog towards them i, I think that in the end we'll get to the same spot but i think biden has shown himself well, i know biden has shown himself to be a um a, you know, a reprehensible monster who has been, who's never seen a policy uh, that, that, that put black people in prison or, or, or started a war that he, he wasn't fully supportive of and not just supportive, but maybe even the, the author of his omnibus, you know, his, his work with Clinton on the omnibus crime bill is a, is a, is a joke. I mean, it, 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 it shows exactly who a person is that would somebody that would be involved, involved in, you know, disproportionate drug sentences for people that have 
rock cocaine as opposed to powdered cocaine because powdered cocaine is a white drug and rock cocaine is a black drug and, and the things like that. Oh, I mean, that's, that's somebody that is, is evil at their core, cr helping to, to create the private prison industry as well. There's no, this is um, obviously I'm preaching to the choir with you, but this is, uh, this is something that humanity needs to back away from very clearly. When you start to incentivize monetarily somebody's freedom, you are, you are dealing with, uh, you, this is a genie that you may not be able to put back in the bottle. This is horrible on, on a number of levels. You've got a private prison industry, which needs to have customers, so to speak. And then you've got this omnibus crime bill that Bill Biden was a part of, which creates a straight to prison pipeline on mandatory minimums and, and things like that. This is the feeder mechanism for the private prison industry. And then you take the next step and, and realize that the private prisons are then publicly traded so that now every moron in the world can buy shares in a company that, that incentivizes keeping people locked in cages. I'm, you know, it's, it's horrifying. So, so if, so this is the type of person we're talking about. We're talking about a guy that has been a pathological liar his entire career, probably even before that, but he's, you can find those funny videos of like in the seventies where he says, I've, I graduated at the top of my class. I, I graduated with three degrees. I had a, I had a, a full scholarship. And, and then there, then it cuts to the newscaster saying, in fact, Biden did not graduate at the top of his class. He was in, he was at the bottom 10%. He did not, he had one degree and not three degrees and he did not have any scholarships. So it's like everything that comes out of this guy's mouth is a lie and has been even way back in the seventies. So excuse me if I'm not uh, of the belief that Joe Biden is going to come in and fix everything. I mean, he might fix it, but in a way that doesn't benefit the people. So, so where we see this, this headed, the controlled demolition of the American empire, uh, it doesn't matter who's in president, you know, who's in charge as president. This is a decision that is well above their pay grade. It is well above the, the heads of the presidents. Now they'll, they'll have a role in this. For sure. They are the puppets. They're the face of this. They're going to have to sell this. And Biden is the type of guy that isn't going to have any sort of moral hang up on trying to sell a dystopian nightmare to people. He has no soul. He does not care. Um, he will be protected. And that's all that he cares about. So I'm not a I'm not a big fan of the Biden camp. That doesn't make me a Trump supporter either. I don't like either of these guys. But I think that I think that at least with Trump and I don't have too much good to say about him, but at least with Trump. You've got a guy that is not at, he, he's a little bit more of a roadblock to these sorts of things. That's the reason why I say that, that it's more of like a slow jog with him. He'll get us into these endless wars eventually because the military industrial complex runs the show, but he might put up some sort of barrier. He might, he might fight it a little bit or change people, you know, switch people around, which he likes to do. But I'm under no illusions that he's some sort of savior that's coming in to to fix everything. And of course, we're still in the middle of a contested election here. Uh, the the media doesn't say that. The media will will say that that that, that, that is not the case. But um, but the media doesn't get to pick the president either. So they're they're already we we've got our problems with them as well. So. So who knows where it's going to go from here? Like who knows who the president is going to be? There's still some legal maneuverings. I don't know that Trump has a has a a good shot at it, but he has a shot at it, and, and the media is trying to to convince you that he doesn't. Which of course makes me think that then he probably has a bigger chance than because if 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 he didn't, they you know they would say so. But 
they're they're being their media is doing what the media does, which is lie and lie and lie about things and create this narrative. So um, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks here in the U.S. But but in the end, um, whether it's Biden or Trump, the goal is endless war. It, they, the goal is another trillion dollars a year to be siphoned off of out of out of the United States and given to the industrial military industrial complex to squander and bomb into submission countries that don't do what America wants them to do. Poorest countries in the world usually as well, which is quite sad. Yeah. So you raised some great points there. And the prison industrial complex was actually an offshoot of the military industrial complex. Just bringing people up to speed watching this on some of the terminology that you're using. And they decided in the 80s, when they ramped up the drug war, that they could exploit mass convict labor. And the black community was particularly hard hit. So George H.W. Bush, for example, he organized a undercover cop to buy some crack outside of the White House from a black kid, teenager. I think he was still in high school. And so he then gave a speech to the country and said, I, this has just been seized out, you know, outside the White House. And this, you know, how evil it is. And we need to lock these people up forever. I am declaring a war on drugs. And it was all about all these parasitic entities, hundreds of them profiting from mass incarceration. So slavery was abolished under the constitution, but they left a loophole. They said that people convicted of crimes could still be forced to work for nothing. And people are astonished in this country when I do talks and I tell them that there are more black guys in prison right now being held in captivity than were held under slavery before slavery was abolished. And they got some of them working on the exact same plantations and areas they had them working on back when they were slaves. And then you got people like Hillary Clinton cackling about the use of prison slave labor so this is the absolute mentality of these psychopaths. And we have Kamala Harris as the vice president, who, when she was the attorney general of California, was, was in charge of putting, using the slave labor from these uh, prisons to be used to put out the fires that we have you know we all there's always like brush fires and during the summer in in california and the fire you know departments are overworked and and they send out these crews to kind of hand fight them and they use a lot of prison labor and she was um a big proponent of that loved it you know and 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 so we're 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 in a <laughs> we're in a weird situation where you've got the the guy that's going to bring you know restore order and democracy to this is a reprehensible maniac who was involved in the you know creation of the private prison industry through the omnibus crime bill and never met a war he didn't like and then his his vice president is a lock em up person who uh, has no problem using slave labor yeah we're back to the the good old days i guess huh <laughs> like it's it, it and and you know the thing is that there's a huge percentage of the people here in america that are like willfully ignorant of that they're like yeah yeah forget about like 
Biden sniffing little kids' heads and everything. That's clearly not a deal breaker for them. They're they're fine with that. It's just at least now we're going to go back to the to to some dignity. That's a big word they're using. The dignity, like back in the Obama administration. You know, the dignity when when the only the only problem that Obama had, the only the only scandal was that he one time wore a tan suit to a press conference and the and the media went nuts. But we're never going to discuss. You know, the, the, the dignity of Obama and Biden administration when they dropped so many bombs on the Middle East that they ran out of them, which is a, a, a claim that sounds like somebody's making that up until you fact check it and realize that that is actually true. They ran out of bombs. So so the 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 dignity of Obama with his his Nobel Peace Prize medal around his neck as he's uh, simultaneously uh, bragging about, well, I guess I'm pretty good at killing people then. Another thing that he said with regard to his drone bomb. So, so this is the dignity that we're getting back. Yeah, we don't get an orange buffoon to embarrass us on the world stage. Instead, we get closeted psychopathy uh, masquerading as decency. Welcome to America. So some people in the live chat have pointed out that they're not against prisoners being put to work. And I'd just like to address that. I completely agree. If you look at the Scandinavians, you know, prisoners get educations, job skills, and they have the lowest reoffending in the world. But if you look at America, where people are just commoditized in huge warehouses now and forced to do these jobs for free, um, making everything from, you know, military equipment to road signs, you see an element of exploitation because... To fill the private prisons to get this slave labor force, they had to change the definition of crime. Before the war on drugs, crime men, person A, who harmed person B, robbers, murderers, rapists, drug traffickers. There's a victim that you can see right there. But to fill the prisons, they criminalized drug use. And the highest category of arrest at the peak of the war on drugs was weed possession almost a million arrests a year for weed possession so if you think those young people should be going to prison where they get turned into neo-nazis if they're white by the gang they end up addicted to heroin 90 percent of prisoners are injecting heroin in, in the arizona state prisons and exploited also by the authorities into slave labor it is not a very good thing to be happening to the young people of america at all those young people perhaps need mentorship and guidance. They shouldn't be getting thrown in prison and getting exploited by all sides. Yeah. And it's the irony is that I can go to, to the legal weed store here where I am in Denver and buy as much weed as I want. And, and, to, and, and to comment on that, what, what the, the viewers are, are saying about, the, about prisoners being put to work. Look, I agree. If, you, if, if I was in prison, I would want something to do and I would want a job and, and, and things like that. You know, so learn a skill if you don't have one. There's, there's, there's benefits to that. But there is also a portion of this that doesn't make any sense, which is if you're one of those fire crew guys that's out there, you know, working for a dollar an hour or whatever they're paying them to, to work on the fire crew, and then you get out of prison, uh, you finish your, your set, uh, stretch, you can't get hired to be a fireman doing that they won't hire you because you have a prison you have a, a prison record for that so so you're ineligible to get these jobs so some of it is like if it was just a training program 
I could understand that if that if it was something that says, listen, we're going to prepare you for, you know, like talked about the Scandinavian prisons, if we were going to teach you how to work on engines, and then when you got out of here, you get a job as a mechanic or something like that. Uh, listen, I, I would be on, on board with that. But but they are warehousing people, especially in California. They're just warehousing them. And if they have a job that they'll, you know, it's putting buttons on something or it's, or it's working in a call center. If it's somebody that can, that can hold a conversation and things like that, but, but um, they exploit them. This is not a training program. This isn't a, a, a use them up and discard them program. And I, and I made a, I put a chapter in the book about Catherine Austin Fitz and where she talks about uh, the, what she calls the tapeworm economy. And that's how this private prison industry started. And that is where, where an industry wants to wants to uh, come into existence, like the private prison industry, and they realize they need two things: they need politicians to create the laws in order to facilitate this, and they need somebody to help them uh, make the whole thing work. So the private prison industry people go approach these powerful law firms in Washington, like a Covington, like where Eric Holder went to work before and after he was uh, Obama's AG. You you approach a law firm like this, tell them what your plan is. That law firm then arranges for powerful politicians that have either been in Washington and used to work for their law firm or people that, that, um, that they have relationships with. And they allow the money to flow from these um, industries that are looking to form to their law firm and then from the law firm to the politicians who then create the laws and work with the law firms in order to to, to frame them, put them together. And then once the industry is created, the pr a percentage of the profits that come from that then flow back into the re-election campaign of all of those politicians that helped them get it off the ground in the first place. And then when they're out of politics, they go take a job at that law firm and get paid for, for services rendered and things like that. So it's a dirty way of that they create the system in and of itself. But then once the system is, is exist in existence, they then have a, a variety of tricks for keeping people there. Like you can't keep somebody in a private prison and you know if he's got a certain amount of years to do, there's not a whole lot they can do about that, but but they can tack on additional time for not making beds and things like all these ticky-tack rules that they've got where they can then add on an, uh, additional sentences. And what's nice about that from, from their warped uh, version of reality is that they can show that they have contracts with these states that, that are guaranteeing them a certain occupancy rate in their private prison, like 80%, 90%, in some cases, 95 or 100%. Then once they have that, it's, it's, it's proof that their concept works. If they want to go build more prisons, they then take that, uh, they show Wall Street they say, listen, we want to raise more money to build a dozen more prisons. And they say, well, how do we know it's going to pencil out? And you say, well, look at the contract we have. This contract guarantees us 90% occupancy from this state. And we have the contract in place. We already have a current private prison working that's exceeding that occupancy. Therefore, we've proved the concept, give us money. And Wall Street gives them as much money as they want. So they build more and more of these prisons with guaranteed occupancy rates. So it is a well thought out plan that is that is absolutely horrible and and it has you know it has it has the impact the sociological effects of, of running through that private prison how do you even quantify that what it does to somebody how, you know that your your phone calls are ten dollars a minute or whatever I and mean, whatever they do i mean they they just drain everybody they drain them emotionally they drain them financially so when they come out of these prisons you know like you said, they're broken you are one of, you know, a success story 
but but as we know here in the states there's just a pipe it's just re the recidivism rate is off the charts it's because when they get out of prison a lot of people i guess don't have a plan why how would they have a plan they're just trying to get their life back together it's a devious dirty horrible industry and guys like joe biden made their careers by doing things like, like coming up with this. Now, in, in, a, in a decent society, they would be mocked and laughed out. But in Washington, D.C., they're treated as geniuses. They're given standing ovations. They're allowed to stay in the club for 48 years and, and, and make policies and things like that, not because they're good people, but because they have shown that they can get creative uh, in new, in, in ex, you know, uh, developing new ways to uh, keep all of these citizens down on the reservation. So just to give two examples then to the viewers of the excesses of this evil, once these private prisons are in place and this financial motive takes over to exploit the prisoners to the maximum, we have the example of prisoners' blood getting purchased from them for pittance and then getting resold on the international market. So I mentioned earlier that um, some of the places in Arizona I was familiar with, approximately 90% of the prisoners were injecting and approximately two-thirds of that population had hepatitis C and other potentially deadly diseases from showing dirty needles. And it was under, I think it was when Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas, when it came out that all this blood contaminated with hepatitis and HIV that was getting sold all over the world, at hugely inflated prices from what they were paying the prisoners for it, multi-millions of profits. When it came out that all this tainted blood was getting transported all over the world and people were getting sick and dying from it, Arkansas was one of the last states to stop the program. And that was under Governor Bill Clinton. And there are people today still seeing parents and family members die as a consequence of that tainted blood. That's a, you know, Bill Clinton... A lot, as you know, he, he winds up coming back in, in everything I write. It, it leads back to him on a variety of levels. I mean, what we're seeing right now with the, the, the banks that blew up the economy in 2008 and were well on their way to blowing it up again in 2020 when the corona situation was used as a, you know, came in to, to masquerade that. The, he repealed Glass-Steagall. Bill Clinton did that. He allowed for that. He deregulated the communications industry, which allowed them to group up from 50 uh, media companies into where we are now, which are five. Um, he was the architect of the omnibus crime bill and, and deeply involved in that as well as, you know, his involvement with the private prison industry. This is a, this is a guy, so many things lead back to him, lead back to the, the decisions he made. And we talk about this in the book about how, you know, when you're, you're, you're doing something like, like a chapter we have called pre-weakening of the building. When, when you're talking about pre-weakening the building, you're talking about instituting policies like the, the, the Clinton policies of NAFTA and things like that, where you outsource all of the infrastructure, all of the industrial capacity, I should say, uh, of the United States overseas, mostly to China and, and, and Asia. That doesn't destroy the country overnight. It's like lighting a 25-year fuse on it though. But when, when it does go off, like in 2020 right now, 
you can see what what's the repercussions of 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 the Bill Clinton, uh, you know, experiments with with these with these trade deals. Well, we've got we're fully dependent on other countries, specifically China. Uh, China makes almost all of the pharmaceutical medication that that we depend on. That's kind of a problem. Uh, it leads us to issues with supply chain management, which you know, we wouldn't have those situations if we had the industrial capacity still in the United States. There's no middle class here anymore. It's, it's, that's gone away. There's no blue collar jobs. It's destroyed cities like Detroit and all the, the rust belt areas inside the, the central part of the United States because of all this. So, so it takes a while. It is, it is a pre-weakening of this, of this country. And, and Bill Clinton was an architect of that. You know, he was deeply, deeply involved in that. And that's not even to say all the drug, you know, his ties to the drug, the drug empire, which of course he was heavily involved in. So it's, um, you know, all signs point back to that guy, that, that whole family and, and his, and his group, they they're, there are some dangerous people. And, you know, and in, in the United States, he gets a free pass because when he was president, he was the guy that would go jogging and all the secret service would follow him jogging. And then he'd, he'd make a stop in McDonald's and everything. And everything. Ah, he's just like us. He's a regular guy, except that, you know, he's a, the, one of the largest cocaine traffickers in the world. But besides that, um, they painted him as this jovial guy who just, oh, he just, he's just, he's Bubba, you know, oh, Bubba, Bubba, being Bubba. And that's, that's the devious uh, nature of the, the media in the United States. They can take guys that should very well be hung for their actions and spin them and recreate them in a way so that the public has a much different, the total opposite, a 180 degree uh, view of who this guy really is. Bill Clinton should be, should be shut out of every, like guys like him and Henry Kissinger and these people, they're still on the scene. How many countless countries do they have to blow up and destroy before we banish them? But in America, if you're a war criminal, uh, but you're good on television, they'll keep you around. We just add a few things onto that then. So it's one thing for us to talk about CIA drug trafficking and the Clinton and Bush crime family's involvement, Iran Contra, etc. But I just watched a really fascinating interview on the YouTube channel Valuetainment. They interviewed Hector Belarez, highly decorated DEA um, officer and retired now. And he just straight out said that when Kiki Camarina was killed, that order came from the US government because Kiki Camarina had got to the level of the CIA political symbiotic relationship with the traffickers. And for an hour, I mean, extremely bravely for this highly decorated person to come out and say this over and over again, he just reinforced and he said, they're running the drugs. They're still running the drugs and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I urge people to go over and watch that interview with Hector. What a great guy. He needs our support, risking his life, speaking out like that from his position. And the other thing is on the um, excesses of the private prisons, I was contacted by a woman when I was incarcerated in Arizona. And she said, look, my son's been sent down for uh, I think it was something like 12 years. He was in a drink driving accident with his friend and the cops raided the house and he had some gothic stuff in his bedroom. So they said he'd killed his friend in a, in a satanic ritual. And it later came out that the judge that sentenced him 
was the judge who went to prison for cash for kids. And if people are not familiar with that, then people should watch those documentaries about it. And these judges had investments in private prisons for kids. So anyone who was sentenced, they were sent to them to be sentenced. They gave them the super aggravated maximum sentences, even if like a cop was called to a school and like some girls had had like a verbal dispute or a fight, he would like send those girls to prison. This is how sick this is. Also that they could profit from the mass incarceration of your children. It's thoroughly evil. And I think that judge wound up getting 27 years. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, good. I I bet his dance card is filled. I bet he's got his boxers on backwards. (laughs) I hope so. There's got to be some justice there. I'm not above being a petty little person for hoping that the judge gets what what he has coming to him. But that's a... That's a that's a reprehensible thing. And, and and you know we're at like a disadvantage here because we're we're looking at this as like you know uh, I'm like a decent normal nice human being who can't imagine doing something like that and then I I try to like project that onto other people and I assume that they're doing you know coming from the same place but think about the mentality of somebody like that judge that that can that can do that for years and years knowing that they are ruining somebody's life over something that didn't have to go that way what because the judge gets paid a little bit of extra it gets kickbacks or whatever gets a little something or his has an ownership stake has stock interest in a private prison i mean i i i can't I can't wrap my head around that mentality. Like, how does that person wake up every morning and go to their job knowing what they're doing? But I, but, but that is, that unfortunately is happening. That happens, as you know, with, with lots of police that are psychopathic and and judges too, I'm sure. I'm sure there's, there's a, there's a huge problem in our, our legal system here in the United States. I mean, what's right and what's wrong doesn't matter. And um, they've incentivized some of the worst things, you know, keeping people in private prisons, you know, having them work as slave labor. That is, that that should never be injected into this society. Like you rightfully said, you know, slavery was abolished, but not really, you know, because it's just, it just depends on what it's the overt chains around your arms in a plantation. Well, look at Angola. I've watched enough MSNBC lockup specials to see <laughs> what happens in Angola. They've got those guys out there working the farm in Alabama or, you know, going, going every single day doing that. That looked like slavery to me too. Now I understand they might've committed crimes, but um, we've got a blurry line here in the United States between, um, between what is, what is right, you know, punishment and, and mix sphere was Adam Smith's Wealth of the Nations. Yeah. And he said that, you know, there's a constant cycle whereby the poorest nations become aggressive and hungry and the become they become the dominant power. But once they become the dominant power, they become fat and lazy and you know they've got all the spoils of the world. And that sows the seeds of decline. Now, I, I read something or heard something that, that said that there's, there's not enough people of um, the fitness level required to go in the American military these days because people's bodies are changing because they just sat at computers all day. Yeah. Uh, 
now we've got the corona and economics in the UK is such that our economy is forecast to decline 11% this year. Now, when people can't work, they go through their savings, they get more in debt, but as it prolongs that they can't work, they run out of their savings, they max out their credit. And the thing that takes the hit is their biggest expenditure, which is usually the mortgage or the rent, which precipitates a house crisis and which is a symptom of overall uh, economic depression and, and, and mayhem. So we're almost a year into lockdown conditions here in the UK. We just went back into um, lockdown level four for the entire country. Looking at the stats, I'm imagining they're going to extend that throughout the Christmas period. But the stock market has rallied. The government has cut taxes, uh, stamp duty on houses, so house prices have maintained a bit. It seems like the government is trying to subsidise the negative effects being caused to the economy. But to do that, they have to borrow from the future and someone's going to have to pay for that at some point. And if the average pandemic lasts two to three years, are we going to see a full-on tidal wave of economic destruction at some point is that what you're predicting oh yeah i i i'm i'm 20 years in as a, in real estate in las vegas i lived through the boom and bust of that uh i saw what 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 that can look like and this will be catastrophic now in the united states they put moratoriums on kicking people out uh, on landlords being able to throw tenants out and for uh, forbearance, you know, or for you know, for foreclosures um, on on people's mortgages, but they can't do that forever. They can't keep that 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 policy going forever. Landlords are already losing money. They're going to default on on their apartment complexes or or, or homes that they own. Uh, and and then people are going to start, you know, then the the. Uh, the forbearance on, on people's mortgages is going to run out at some point. They're going to have to start paying their bills. And when they can't, they're going to, the banks are going to do what they've always done, which is they loan fake money into existence in the form of mortgages. And when people can't pay or when they create a crash, then people can, can no longer pay the mortgage. They take back tangible real estate. And, and that is what will happen again. It's just that Real estate pricing, real estate, it's kind of like a lagging indicator here. And especially it's, it's especially lagging when the government is doing things like making it so that you can't kick people out of your apartment complex or you can't foreclose on them. So that's just del delaying the inevitable, but it will, it will come. Uh, and, and, and I've been predicting that. In fact, I just did a presentation for the Dollar Vigilante Summit yesterday where we talked about that. I talked about what's, what's on the market for, for uh, real estate. Retail uh, real estate is dead. It is, it, is, it is dead in a way. It is dead like the way malls have been dying over the years. They've been, you know, just nobody's going there anymore. There's a paradigm shift. There's an online explosion. In fact, Amazon is buying old malls and turning them into distribution centers in some cities. So uh, this is, it's the, 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 the whole economy is being changed, but the economy is being changed deliberately too, because we see this great reset component to it. And part of what they need is they need utter destruction in order to build back better. You know, that term that Joe Biden keeps using, we're going to build back better. 
That is from the World Economic Forum. That is from the Great Reset. They're talking about that. A component of this Great Reset that needs to happen first, though, is the the current situate the current financial paradigm that we're living in needs to be destroyed. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see economic destruction through you know, it, it it's you, you don't have to be an economist or Nostradamus or anything to, to understand this. It is obvious for anybody with the eyes to see it, that this is where we're headed with note there. The jobs are going away. Savings is going away. It, we're going to be, it's going to be up to extending credit to people in order to pay their bills. We see UBI coming in uh, being offered as a solution to that, which is, which is a trap. So th- this is, I, I foresee, you know, dark days ahead in a variety of industries, real, real estate being my specialty, of course, but, but, uh, but, but right on schedule too. This is, this is, this is not accidental. These, these lockdown orders are unjust. They don't, they're, they're disproportionate. It's a disproportionate reaction to, to these numbers. Like we, we were talking about deaths early on and then deaths went away and now it's cases and now it's cases, cases, cases. Everybody's got cases. Okay. I don't care about cases. I care about deaths. What are we seeing? We're not talking about deaths anymore. So it's like, all right, so what are we doing? And, and, and what we're doing is we are role-playing, play-acting, and following these governors that are telling everybody to shut down and not have people over for Thanksgiving because it's going to kill grandma. And it's like, haven't we done this already? We did this in March. We did this in April. We closed everything down. You said it would be two weeks to flatten the curve. We're like, we're months into this. And, and it's, it's starting to dawn on people. This is not about flattening the curve. This is about flattening the economy. And, 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 and people that might disagree with that, I asked the question then, why is it okay for you to shop at Walmart, but it's not okay for you to go into a small hardware store? Those are ha- those have to be closed, but Walmart's open. Like, have you been in a Walmart in, in the United States ever? Like, it, that's the last place you want to go if you're trying to avoid viruses. You know what I mean? <laughs> have you seen the people? There's a website called the People of Walmart, which points out accurately pictures of the type of people that are in Walmart. It's like a, it's like the bar from Star Wars every single day in Walmart. But but that's okay. <laughs> We're allowed to shop there. I can't go to the local hardware store because I'm going to get the Rona. But I can go to to. I mean, none of it makes any sense. And people are 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 are, you know, at first it was like okay, well I'll catch up on Netflix for a couple weeks and I'm off work and I'm still getting paid and whatever. But now people have been sitting around long enough that they're going, this doesn't make sense to me. None of these things, this is like an incongruent uh, reaction to this virus. So, So the economy is slated for destruction, for sure. But, but even if the coronavirus wasn't introduced this year, the banks had done a pretty good job of blowing it up anyway. I mean, we were, we were seeing major problems with all of the, you know, with Deutsche Bank, which is the canary in the coal mine, as far as I'm concerned. I actually always thought that Deutsche Bank would be the trigger to take everything down because it's just, a, it's like a zombie bank. It's totally insolvent. It's connected to all these other banks. They all have, you know, they have like two quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives sitting on each other's books. These are like bets on bets. It, 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 it only takes one guy. It's like going to a poker game where everybody's betting. And then you find out that one guy that's been playing doesn't actually have the money that he said he had. And you're like, you've compromised the whole game. Like it affects everybody. And when a bank like Deutsche Bank is insolvent and being propped up by the, by the, you know, 
by the by the country of Germany, you're like, this is unsustainable. This thing looks like it's going to blow up. And if it blows up and they, and we have derivative uh, business together on each other's books, like that's going to impact my bank. And if it impacts my bank and I go under, then all the other people I have derivative bets with, it affects them. And then it, it just, it's contagion and that you can't. So the banking system it was, was set up to blow anyway. Uh, it, the difference is that the Corona situation just deflected the blame off of them and placed it on, on this, on a virus that no, you know, Hey, we can't get mad at the virus, right? It just came out of nowhere. It's, it's very convenient. It's another one of those invisible enemies that America likes to chase around and, and, and pretend to hide from just like terrorism. And, 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 and now we've got a new version of it, a, an invisible virus that you can't see, but you got to walk down this aisle one direction, because if you don't, it'll get you. It's just nonsense. So we've had this massive rally in the stock market then, and Gerald Salente, whose channel I follow, describes it as a function of monetary methadone. And you've got a chapter in your book, The Fed and the IRS, Mutually Parasitic Relationship. Yeah. So what, what do you have to say about the Fed? I hate them. Uh, but that's the, <laughs> the Federal Reserve is, is a huge problem. Uh, to, for, for this. And it doesn't get a lot of, 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 of play because most people are like, oh, it's a bank and banks are boring and I don't really care about it. And I understand that because banks are boring. But, but the Federal Reserve and what they've done is uh, in 1913, they came into existence. They, there was a meeting in 1910, all of the big bankers got together and they decided that they wanted to create this private central bank called the Federal Reserve. There had been private banks in the United States before, but they had been smashed because they were destroying the country and the, and the politicians were like, this bank, is, this is no good. We got to get rid of it. So they've come and gone in, in, in American history before, but in 1913, it came to life in the Federal Reserve Act and, and, and grown right alongside it was the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, it also was formed in 1913. So the scam works like this. The Federal Reserve, which is a private bank, has an arrangement with the U.S. Treasury. The Treasury, you would think the Treasury prints money and then, you know, it does all this stuff. They do not. They, because of a, of a dirty arrangement with Woodrow Wilson and the creation of this Federal Reserve Bank, the Federal Reserve creates the money and then loans it to the Treasury at interest. And after the end of that year, uh, they owe that money back plus interest. They tend to keep the, you know, a deficit running, but they owe the interest. So the money for that interest, the government is like, we don't want to, we don't want to pay that money out of our pocket. Hell, if we had the money, we wouldn't need to borrow it in the first place. Let's find somebody else who will pay for that. So they created the Eternal Revenue Service. So the IRS goes around and taxes the public and uses that tax money that they get to pay the interest to the Federal Reserve so that the government doesn't have to. So that's why it's a, a dirty scam because if we wanted to do it the right way, we'd just have the treasury create the money themselves. Not, I'm not trying to say that the United States government and the treasury should be trusted with the money. Obviously they're, they're really bad at it too, but, but they could at least create this money that didn't have interest attached to it. And then we wouldn't have $24 trillion deficit here in the, in the, in the U.S. like the way we do. But, um, but they created, and that's why we called it a mutually parasitic relationship, because the, 
the Fed needs the IRS to go collect all that money. They need them to go be the loan shark that goes and gets them their money. And the IRS needs the Fed to keep uh, loaning money at interest to the, to the treasury because the IRS then has a job to do after that. They, they, they're, their job is to go collect all these taxes. But, but if the system was set up the right way from the beginning, we would have avoided all of this, um, all of this debt. And, and when you find out that this money is going back to pay private bankers, profits, trillions of dollars to private bankers, it's even more nefarious because you realize, okay, these are kind of the, the worst people in the world to be incentivizing this you know, for the system. But, but if you have this conversation with just about anybody they will tell you that the Federal Reserve is a government agency, but it is not, despite what they say. It is very cloaked in secrecy. It is in, the intention is for people to be confused about this, to, to, to believe that it is a government agency. But you can, you can find quotes from Alan Greenspan, which I put in my, in my Octopus book, that says things along the lines of the Federal Reserve does not answer to any outside regulatory agencies. So as long as our relationship stays intact, there is nobody that has oversight over us. And that, and he's talking about the government. He's saying government doesn't run us. <laughs> they were, they, they're the, they're in charge. So, so that's, that's where we go. And I love Ger Gerald Salente too, by the way. I love it. He gets, goes on his rants about the white shoe boys and these, and I'm going to, I'm a close combat guy and I'll flip <laughs> you into the, you know, I'll break your jaw. I, I He's and he's right. He's right about these bankers. He's right about these these guys. You know, I, I did a chapter in the octopus book called terrorists in nice suits. And because the bankers are or or every you know, they're they might not be yelling Allah Akbar, you know, down at the docks while they're plotting this big, you know, uh, event. But the bankers are every bit terrorists. They are digital financial terrorists. The things that they've done, the, the moves that they've made, the, the policies that, that are in place benefit them. And they make a ton of money off of war, as do a lot of these industries. And so they have a vested interest in keeping us fighting and divided and keeping this, this very unfair banking system in play. And, um, and, and, and you know, we, we, we write about the... the controlled demolition of the American empire and how it chain, it will change the way America operates because of its influence. But I would suggest that the British uh, went, had, had, you know, a demolition of their empire as well, but where they made their, their changes, they might not have the overt empire that controls India and, you know, and South Africa and all these in Australia and all these countries, Canada, but it's been replaced instead of an overt control, it's banking control. So they got the, the memo a long time ago, created, you know, the city of London and the relationship there. And then the British offshore banking havens like Jersey and Bermuda and Cayman Islands and all these places. So there's a, there's the overt American empire that's, that is running things. But uh, I'd say that the British have done a very good job of keeping their version of an empire alive uh, in a more covert and underground sort of way through the devious work of these banker criminals. So people often ask, you know, who is running the world? Is there a conspiracy? Are groups competing for power? I've asked David Ike loads of questions on that subject. So putting that to you, Dan, would you say that the banking cartel, from your research, if this is a trillion-dollar scam, would you say that the banking cartel is the most powerful cartel in the world. Yes. 
I would say the banking cartel is. Yeah, I would say that the the these multi generational banking families that have kept it all and you know kept kept the wealth with them, they're they're dangerous because. Uh, I mean, look, we could talk about the drug cartels and all that. We could talk about big pharma. We could talk. There's all they're all dangerous in a variety of ways, but the banking component of it is is to me has always been more dangerous because nobody really thinks about them as being these evil uh, purveyors of of insanity. But but they are the 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 flow of money is this is the blood that keeps this giant octopus going it's got to keep flowing and the bankers make it flow they 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 divert money away from some places yemen let's say they it flows other places cayman islands into you know numbered bank accounts that wind up uh, influencing politicians when you've got all the money in the world you can go buy influence so the bankers have control they have control of governments they have control of of, of individual people, their big corporations are dependent on them. The people that own and run these banks sit on the boards of directors of other multinational corporations. It's, it's, it is a spider's web you know, intertangled. And speaking of spider's web, there is a great documentary about the British uh, secret offshore banking system called the spider's web. And uh, I would encourage people to check that out if they haven't. It's really well done. It talks a, a lot about the devious background of, of these uh, of the banks, how they disguise their uh, role in this, how how you know offshore banking havens have played a, a part in this, how the British uh, political establishment just willfully looks the other way and pretends like there's nothing going on there with that. It's 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 a fascinating look, and and the banks, you know, it, the the banks are 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 so dangerous, and yet. So many people just assume that it's uh, boring people wearing suits going to work, putting you know, looking at numbers on a spreadsheet, and that's all they do. They they have no idea. They have no reason to think that uh, that there's something nefarious going on there, but there is. And I will say I will, I will say that the Bank for International Settlements, which is the bank of cent the central bank of the central banks, that is uh, based in Basel, Switzerland, they they're building. The actual building itself has some very unique rules to it. Anybody working at this bank does not have to pay taxes ever for their entire lives. They are immune from prosecution. They, the police and the authorities are not allowed into the building under any circumstances. They can't get a warrant. Anybody leaving that building holding a briefcase filled with documents is not able to be searched. The contents are not able to be checked. The, the laws do not apply in that building, that a building that has been built with a underground bomb shelter. The only, I mean, the only laws that apply there are like the laws of gravity. And even that they might get a pass on. It, it is, it is a very deep. So it makes you question like, what's going on here? Why do you need all of these rules of secrecy that prevent the authorities from even setting foot or digging into anybody connected to this bank, bank for international settlements? And the answer is because it's the epicenter of criminality on this planet. That's where it, it's coming from this place. And if the authorities were able to get in there, they would see things that they did not think that they could see uh, in terms of how this system is really being run. But it's a, it's set up in a way that, that prevents um, scrutiny from uh, the authorities. So you mentioned the drug cartels. The author of Crossing the Rubicon wrote that cartel cash 
underpinned the liquidity of the banking system and therefore economic growth was dependent upon it as well. Do you have you researched that? And do you think that's one of the reasons that drugs are not being legalized at the level of government? Because that black market provides that cartel cash, which underpins the liquidity of the banking system. Yeah. And I and I actually wrote a chapter about Michael Rupert in the book uh, called The Slowest Camper. And, and Michael Ru Rupert wrote the Crossing the Rubicon. He wrote a, a, a he made a comment about how if you're if you're a camper, if you're with a bunch of campers and you're you're camping overnight at, at a campsite and a bear comes to your to your campsite, you technically don't need to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than the slowest camper. And we explained that the government uses this philosophy and uh, in, in, in their crony capital system to hand their favorite camper a gigantic stick. So when the bear shows up, that camper just beats another camper in the knees and then takes off running, you know, so so that that camp, the, the one that they've hit with in the knees gets eaten and the rest of them make it off. He 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 was joking. You know, he was being kind of facetious in this, but 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 he's he's right in that 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 they will the government will allow certain amount certain aspects of criminality to happen as long as it's happening on their side as long as it's their sanctioned version of that so the drug trade allowing that to happen and michael rupert you know he's the guy that stood up in that meeting in, in los angeles and 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 told the police chief that he has evidence of uh of, of the cia running drugs in los angeles and uh you know he was a brave guy so he would know that the, the drug money is, is look, the banks themselves don't care where the money comes from. They don't care if it's drug money or, or, or money from a little old lady. They need all of it. They want all of it. HSBC, how many times do they have to get busted for, for running, you know, for laundry money for the cartels? They, they, they built their teller windows in a way that allowed them to slide the certain type of box with money, right? I mean, this is, so we, we, the common person is looking around going, why doesn't the government do anything about this money laundering that's happening with the drugs? And it's like, because the government is running it. <laughs> that's why they're not going to do anything about it. They need this. This is part of part of their their black budget programs. It's part of the reason why the CIA was involved in in, in Mena, Arkansas, and all of this. If there are certain things you can go to Congress for, it, to, and and use you know and beg them for money for your budget and use that money for certain things, and Congress says that's fine. But there are other components of what you're trying to do in the CIA that you cannot tell Congress that you're doing. And that the money for those programs has to come from somewhere else. And of course, one of the ways they finance it is through the, is through drug trafficking. Uh, while hypocritically, of course, you know, saying drugs are bad. So that that's where we go. The banks are co-conspirators in almost all of these schemes. Yeah, just a little side story on that then. There was someone present at a dinner where George H.W. Bush was at and George H.W. Bush was asked, you know, how on earth do you get away with running this war on drugs while at the same time overseeing this operation with Oliver North whereby you're bringing the drugs in? And George H.W. Bush's response was that the possibility of that being true was so far removed from what the public would ever believe. That's how I get away with it. 
but people like Hector Bellares and people like Charlie, um, Michael Rupert early on, um, you know, momentum is built to the point now where I think a lot of people can see that the CIA were hugely involved, especially in the, the Iran-Contra thing that, that really blew up. And uh, Clinton was right there providing the state security for the drugs coming in. But then they had the boys on the tracks incident and that all blew up in his face. And poor Linda Ives, her son died, still hasn't got justice to this day. So I hope um, she does have some peace of mind at some point. All right, going back to what you just said about the banks then. So if you look at the names of these banks, I remember when I graduated from university, I applied at a lot of the investment banks and they've got these historic names, um, aristocratic names out of Europe. So hundreds of years of history there, the drug the banking cartel seems to me to be a product of these aristocratic families out of Europe, and then increased and intensified by the Anglo-American establishment. My question to you is, as power shifts around the world, and it looks like, you know, China is gonna have this massive economy, we're seeing the rise of China, uh, how, does the rise of China factor in to the plays being put in motion by the banking cartel? Are they an opposing force or does the banking cartel incorporate the rise of China into the schemes? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We did a, a chapter on China in the book called the Thucydides Trap, which is a Greek concept that the, that the rise of a new empire threatens the existing empire uh, and in 12 of the 16 instances in which this has happened throughout our recorded history, it has led to war. So I think the banks uh, are very much aware of this. They see the rise of China as, uh, well, they see the rise of China for what it is, a potential opportunity for them to shift power into the, into the, in, it, the banks are not loyal to 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 the the white man or they they want whoever's in charge they'll work with them and they'll and they'll well whoever's in charge is the banks let's be clear about that but but a rising country that that needs their work they will partner up with them we saw this happen in the early 60s through the, in the United States with when uh, Richard Nixon Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller opened up China to the United States. Now they did it, they didn't do it necessarily on behalf of America in general, they did it on behalf of Chase Bank, which David Rockefeller was running. So we see that the banks have always viewed China as this massive opportunity. Now China is a little different, obviously, they've, they've got a more of a top-down authoritarian rule structure. So it's not as easy as compromising say the way that America could get involved with, with these banks, but they'll find a way to do it. They'll find a way to make it, um, you know, it, they already got a taste of it with HSBC through Hong Kong, where um, it they started. You know, HS it's Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Company. So it's 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 already a British controlled bank doing business with with Hong Kong, and and then of course now Hong Kong had been folded into mainland China uh, by default, doing business with them as well. This is um, this is how they get their foot in the door. So I would expect the the banks will always. Well, I shouldn't say we'll always be in charge, but the banks 
are in charge and have been in charge for a long, long time. So the, the relationship that they have with China, I'm, my guess is that it will continue to grow, especially with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is going to suck up trillions of dollars. It's going to need access to a, a lot of cash, which of course the banks can provide out of thin air. So they'll be deeply involved in this and, um, and, and this shift towards China has America really freaked out. Uh, and, and, and you're starting to see, or we're starting to see here in the US, um, stories that are getting on the news. You've got to be, watch out for China. They're threatening us. They're, they, they're, they're building in the Spratly Islands, which is like, it's right off of their shore. It doesn't no threat to, it's 5,000 miles away from us. It doesn't make any sense. But the media is starting that buildup of the demonization of China. And look, China's got a lot of problems. There, there's a lot of things that, 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 we're, we're not okay with, but the, but the extra, uh, the, the real hardcore demonization is just starting. And that is because the United States views China as a threat. Now, if the banking component of this decides to, to put their chips with China, uh, then, then America will be on their losing end of this because where the money flows, that's, that's who, who will survive this. So we're in a, we're in an interesting situation right now where, um, the banks have never been more as, as powerful as they are. And they're, they're the ones that could pick a winner. And if they decide that they're going to put their chips with China, we're going to be in a difficult, um, a difficult situation. But, but, but look, America has nobody to blame, but themselves for these situations. I mean, our, rep, our, our, our behavior has been pretty awful with, with countries threatening them and, and doing things like, uh, you know, slapping sanctions on countries that don't don't deserve it just because they you know they we've had sanctions on China, on on Cuba for 70 60 or 60 years now yeah so for what were they a threat to us no because we don't like the way they do business we don't like them so this sort of mentality gets really old and i think the countries around the world have witnessed this maybe have been on the receiving end of, of america's wrath uh and and so if there is a shift from the us to china you know look nobody nobody's a huge fan of the chinese regime because of the way they conduct business but you know, we're not, they're not loving America. Eat. The, the vast majority of countries are, are not loving America's behavior as well. So they may, they may welcome a new change. And that of, of course will have uh, you know, massive repercussions for, for the world economic economics in general, but America specifically. Maybe the UK is going to have to pay the price for the opium wars at some point, which they're going to get fentanyl. They're going to get, they're going to get fentanyl shipped in and it'll be the reverse. They're going to get a taste of their own medicine. It's already happening here in the U S from China. Oof, and that was uh, highly profited from by the elite families, aristocratic families yeah. um, that ran that scam on the Chinese. So if we look at the cycle of world wars, then going back, you know, so many hundred years, it seems that the superpower starts picking off the poorest countries and the smallest countries, like the you know the high school bully. Yep. But it, it gets to the point where it picks off so many countries that the other bigger players say, "Look, we've got to do something about this," and they get together and they try and stop the superpower, and that's you know what ignites world war. Because of technology advancing, 
every world war there has been more deaths military technology weapons and now we're in a nuclear age of mutually assured destruction mm -hmm. do you think that that cycle will be prevented by mutually assured destruction or do you think that human nature is unchangeable and maniacs will always get in power and kick off these world wars anyway boy i like to i'd like to stay optimistic on this one and say that 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 maybe the threat of nuclear war is just a threat but i unfortunately see things like tactical nukes going off in places like yemen with these massive explosions and i've i see that that you know the united states has used depleted uranium in places like fallujah so there's no line that these maniacs won't cross uh one of the things that has me very concerned is that we we talk about like the the, the united states petrodollar arrangement with saudi arabia and that has been used to so what it is is it it, it uh, Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries agreed that they will only sell oil in exchange for US dollars. Meaning if you've got rubles, you can't buy uh, oil from them. You have to convert it to US dollars and then use those US dollars to buy the oil. That has kept the US dollar in a, in a very strong situation where it's constantly needed. There's, there's always going to be demand for the dollar because there's always going well because there is demand for oil that might change in the future but current the current paradigm is set up like that now countries that have said we don't like this arrangement we have our own oil we'd like to sell it for something else iraq with saddam hussein once they after the first Gulf War in 1991, they had sanctions put on them, the oil for food program and things like that. They tried to go around that and, and sell oil in exchange for something else. Gold, I think is what it was. And they found themselves wanting up getting, you know, slated for destruction in 2003 under the guise of weapons of mass destruction when they didn't have anything, you know, and they were also trying to tie Saddam to 9-11, which was nonsense. So of course they didn't come right out and say, we're going to invade Iraq because they're trying to go off of the petrodollar arrangement, but that was part of it. And Libya had the same, same thing as we talked about earlier. Now, there are two countries that are working out their own deals, and that is China and Russia. They are working about trading oil with each other. That is going to be a huge problem for the petrodollar arrangement. But like you said, these aren't the small, these aren't the little kids that the bully's been stuffing in lockers. This is the football team. This is the bully that's going up to the captain of the football team. And it's see, are you going to bully them? Two, two guys from the football team. All right. Big guys here. So what America does to defend this petrodollar arrangement uh, has always been to invade countries. But now when you've got someone like China, who, if they did this individually might be on the, you know, they might be a target or if Russia had done it individually, they might be a target as well but they're trading together with each other. Now it's two against one. Look, America, let's be very honest here. America had a hard time in Vietnam. America has had a hard time in Afghanistan, uh, fighting guys that are on burrows, shooting uh, rifles that don't shoot straight. Okay, we don't want any of, of China and we certainly don't want any of the Soviet Union. Let me remind people what happened in World War II. The Soviets lost like 20 million of their guys. They are savages. And I mean that with all due respect. That's not an army you want to fight. And with China, I don't know. I don't know about them. I, I, there's a lot of people there. They've got amazing technology. Hell, they build most of our technology. They've got, you know. So this is not a war we want to get into 
under the best of circumstances. We certainly don't want to get ourselves engaged in something like this when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when we've got major uncertainty as far as uh, the, the economy of the United States. Uh, this would be catastrophic. But the decision might not be ours to make. Uh, we are of the belief, and the, the premise of this book is that this New World Order group, now, not, not our name for them, their name for themselves. That's what they call themselves. Uh, they cannot put their plan for global world government in place with an existing superpower like the United States, with an existing empire still in existence. It has to be destroyed first before their plans are in place. So it would be a really bad idea for us to, us meaning the United States uh, government, to get involved in a war with China or Russia uh, under the guise of trying to defend this petrodollar arrangement, quietly trying to defend it. Because of course, they'll never tell you that's the reason why they would start these wars. So they'll have to covertly come up with a reason for the wars to fight both of these. This is, this is not something that we want as Americans. But if you're this new world order group that is pulling the strings on all of this, might be exactly what you want. Because then you can, you can, you can destroy the American empire while simultaneously weakening China and Russia all at once. So it, it could be something that they would want. I, I, am, I am very hopeful that we don't go that route, that, that, that you know, smart people get involved or people that understand that people that are actually playing 4D chess <laughs> hope that they, they are looking at these scenarios and saying, whoa, 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 this is really bad. Like, this is not a fight that we want. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the use of the banking system and... It, can can force or can can create hot wars for these countries it's very it's it's a very uh dangerous time right now uh and you've also got you know we we kind of describe in in the book america as like that drunk you know like like the humiliated drunk in the bar at the end of the night who wants to fight everybody you know he's just been pushing everybody around but but he's he's kind of humiliated and and he and he's he's kind of unpredictable well, at some point, everybody in the bar is going to gang up and beat the crap out of this guy. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of where we are in America. We've been this, we've been just pushing everybody around for a long time. And when it comes time, when somebody stands up to us, we're going to find that we don't have the support that we thought we had. Um, not because, you know, not because the other countries just turn their back on us for no reason, but because our behavior over the last 50, 60, 70 years post-World War II has not been the greatest and, 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 and we're getting sort of a taste of our own medicine. So we're at, we're at a very interesting pivotal time um, because of what America, uh, because of America's role in this global, this global society that we're in uh, we're fading, we're fading fast. And, uh, and it just, it just is a matter of, uh, you know, do we have any real allies at this time? Cause I see a lot of fake allies out there. I see a lot of countries that are supposed to be our friends, but don't actually act in, in, in our best interests. So it'd be interesting to see how these things turn out in the coming year. So there's somebody who really needs to be in our thoughts right now, who needs our help and support. And he has sacrificed his life and his health and his freedom for truth and he's in a prison not too far from me, and that is Julian Assange. Now, you've written a chapter here called The Military Information Terror Complex. 
So I was hoping you could expand on that in the context of Julian and that video he's got that went viral on WikiLeaks collateral murder. Yeah, that's a, so we, the Eisenhower, um, warned about the undue influence of the military industrial complex. He talked about that in, in, in the speech that he gave as he was leaving office. And he would know he was a five-star general. He, he understood that, that these companies that, that deal in the, in the business of war are very dangerous. And of course, they're only really profitable as long as they can be in, the, in, in war. So they have a vested interest in, in constantly keeping war uh, happening, but we thought that that term military industrial complex was a bit outdated. You know, we it, people didn't really know what the industrial part was, or then there there was it had kind of evolved uh, over the last seventy years. So so what is the so we came up with a concept of the military information terror complex, which it takes the military complex that we all the bomb making companies in those the information uh, component of that is the mainstream media the Googles and Alphabet companies of the world, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of these, these social media companies, uh, and, and the terror complex. And the terror complex are things like the think tanks that are involved in dreaming up these unwinnable, never-ending wars. And, and part of what they, what they need in order to keep their uh, multi-trillion dollar a year scams going and to keep the the American people destabilized in, in term you know and looking for boogeymen around every corner, the terrorists coming to get us and all that uh, nonsense, is they they have to have a monopoly on the information. They cannot, under any circumstances, allow things like the collateral murder video to get out and show what's actually happening. Yes, troops come back in from the battlefields and tell these stories, but but nothing compares to seeing on video that Apache gunship murdering journalists there that they thought were were insurgents i mean how you determine somebody's an insurgent from a from a helicopter that's a quarter of a mile away i don't know but but julian assange committed the unspeakable crime of releasing this information in embarrassing america and much like that humiliated american drunk uh comparison that i make this is a this is an embarrassment on America that that is that people can't forget. And so, what is his reward for that? It's, it is, of course, the demonization of him and, and put, putting him in in a prison situation. Same thing with Chelsea Manning, who who rightfully exposed these war crimes and, and worked in conjunction with Assange. It's dirty. It's horrible. Reprehensible. But it's also one of those symptoms of in the cycle of the end of empires. And one of those is the, is the uh, demonization of whistleblowers and the truth and things like that. So under Obama and, and, and Trump gets this reputation. I'm not, and I've said, like I said before, I'm no, I'm no Trump supporter, but he gets this reputation of being this unhinged uh, maniac who, who is, uh, you know, trying to silence everybody. And he's, he's, He's plotting and scheming and doing all these things, which of course I'm sure he is doing. But let's remember that the dignity candidate, Obama, is the one that put more whistleblowers in prison for violations of the Whistleblower Protection Act than all of the American presidents in history combined. So there is a push to silence anybody that is pointing these things out. It is reprehensible. Julian Assange 
is I tell you what's 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 equally reprehensible. The coordinated uh, actions of the mainstream media to pretend that there isn't a Julian Assange situation, that they have just decided that, oh, well, he's a bad guy. And so we're not going to stand up for him like they don't understand that the silencing of his voice will eventually lead to the silencing of everybody's voice. But they're corporate whores, so they don't really care too much about that. But if we had a functioning, a, a true media, uh, like the alternative media that is interested in the truth and, 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 you know, and, and trying to get that out there, well, then if we had that, then we would see the mainstream media rising up to defend Julian Assange, which of course we don't, we don't see. So it's, it's uh but that's a sign. That's a sign, a, a sign and symptom of a dying empire when you have to silence people that are rightfully and clear, clearly exposing the uh, atrocities that you're committing. Then you're no longer a decent society. You're 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 a war crime society, and you're trying to to silence people that are pointing that out. That is, uh, that that is that is something that that should be an alarm. You know, it should be an alarm bell. Go. That is that is why we put that in the you know. Uh, ringing the alarm bells. We've got we've got a couple different aspects of that, but that's one of the things to look out for in in, in conjunction with wealth inequality and gun control confiscation and things like that, and two tiered systems of justice, which we've been talking about for the first hour of this. So um, these are these are some of the signs that you look for in a dying empire, and and Julian Assange is a perfect encapsulation of that because you've got a guy from an organization like WikiLeaks, which has a really good reputation in terms of being anchored in the truth. And that is treated in an unhealthy society, that is treated as something that needs to be uh, demonized and removed. And of course, that is uh, that should be alarming to everybody. So I think this is a good point because this is our first ever live stream to ask the people, we've got almost 1700 watching um, together now, to ask the people, in the live stream if they have any questions for you cool. so while, while we're waiting for those questions to come in i would urge people to go down in the description box below the video and support charlie's work check out his book um, it's available worldwide and all the links are right down there so let's see um oh and you can follow me on twitter too at macroaggressions but i mean i'm there for as long as i'm there i i'm I'll, full disclaimer i've already been kicked off once in uh <laughs> back in in february so uh you know i got a big mouth on me but 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 i i, I promise i'm 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 fun to watch tristan wants to know what shampoo we use i'll yeah. skip that one the, the kind that got recalled <laughs> after we used it clearly <laughs> lily wants to know is there any hope for the people charlie of course there's hope for the people. We outnumber these people a million to one. There's, there's always hope. But the problem is we get divided. We're, we're, getting, we're constantly being divided. Labor and Tory, Republican, Democrats, mask wearers, not mask wearers, rich, poor, black, white. They keep dividing us down into smaller and smaller groups because we're more easy to, easily controllable then. And, and, and by the way, we keep fighting with each other. So we do most of the work for them. But of course, there's hope for us. There's, there, we're, I, when I see these protests, when I see the people getting out and talk, I'm not talking about the riots. I'm talking about the protests that you guys seem to do really well. In America, we're sort of, we're, we're good at the rioting part, but maybe not the protesting part. But especially in Europe, you guys standing up against lockdowns and mass regulations and all these things, that's hope right there. That, that's showing that, that, that we're not 
all dumbed down morons. We see this. We, we understand what's going on. We're not asking. We're, first of all, stop asking for things. Stop asking your government to do things for you. Just tell them to do it. Do not comply with unjust orders, period. They cannot stop all of us. This is the one thing that they don't want to get out is that if we collectively decide it's over, it's over. The lockdowns, the shutdowns, the med, the, the, all of this insanity. If we just collectively get together on the same page, which is admittedly difficult to get everyone to do, but if we did, it's over because they need us. They need us to do what they say. We're in this position where we're looking at them. And I say them as elected government officials, mainstream media news people, and the experts that they bring on. We're looking at them as some as the leaders. We need to reevaluate our position in terms of how we view our relationship with authority, with government officials. They work for us. We don't work for them. We elected them to represent us. They're not in They're not our controllers. That's not their job. We need to remind them of this. We need to make them feel uncomfortable. There's a great, there's a great story that Chris Hedges tells. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author, journalist. He's been covering wars for a long, long time. And he talks about this scene that happened in the White House back in the 60s when there was civil unrest. And they have uh, Richard Nixon and, his, and, and Henry Kissinger is there. And, and Nixon had just ordered buses to be uh, put in end to end surrounding the White House as a way to try and stop these protesters. And Nixon is looking out the window and he's saying to Henry, Henry, they're going to come and get us. They're going to get us. They're going to climb the walls and get us. And Chris Hedges says, that is exactly where you want them to be at all times. That's the mentality you want them to have. You want them to feel that at any moment, the people are going to come and get them. And right now, the governments, I think it's fair to say, they don't fear that. They haven't feared that in a long, long time. But once they do, things will start to change. So of course, Lily, there is, there is hope for this. There is always hope for it. They, they, they need to convince us that there is no hope in order for the, for us to give up when you give up, you know, then, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They said there was no hope. I guess there's no hope. And now, now we've got mandatory lockdowns and mandatory vaccinations and all this stuff. We can change that, but I'm telling you right now, we're running out of time. So we need to collectively come to a realization that, that we, we, we are the ones that should be in charge. We are the ones that have the numbers and we shouldn't forget that. Frank said, what does Charlie think of the end of the Babylonian era? Are you hip to the Babylonian era? I'm not, is not, not, I'm not versed enough on that to, to, sorry, Frank, I wish I could give you an educated answer on that, but I would be fooling you and myself and everybody. I'm not qualified to speak about the Babylonian era. era. I know a little bit about, but I don't, I don't know the, the details of that. Okay, I'll go to the next question. Kojak's Football Shack has asked, how long has the controlled demolition been in the planning? Well, so I'll tell you, things like, um, things like these trade programs that have been put into place in the mid-90s, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, that they didn't have these plans on the table before that, because they did. You can read uh, reports from the Club of Rome talking about this in 1971 in their paper, The Limits to Growth, talking about how they, they plan to create the concept of global warming and use that as a carbon tax, you, to use that to create a carbon, carbon tax uh, 
uh, to create a one world government with that carbon tax being the funding mechanism of it. Now, so they talk about that in 1971. Now, did that translate into actions in 1971? I don't know. This is a process that's set, set well in advance. So well, let's go, let's say at least early 70s, this, this plan has been on the table. But I would suggest that the, the plan for world conquest has always been on the table. You know, it's just that they've never really had the actual ability to pull it off until recently. But where they're going and what they have planned for us uh, is, is more like a, a digital prison that we would walk in ourselves into under the guise of being a part of this uh, great reset. So uh, the plans have been there for a long, long time. The steps have been put into place over the last de decades. And, and some, some uh, policies are newer than others, but something like NAFTA is a time bomb waiting to go off. So you plant enough of these time bombs with bad policies or gutting the education system and things like that. And you don't know exactly when it's all gonna go off. You just know that the cumulative effect of all of these bad policies is going to destroy the country. So where we are right now, it seems as though the memo has gone out to everybody that 2020 is the year. Let's hurry this, ramp it up. All you globalist maniacs, let's start the vaccine program. Let's start the, 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 the removal of cash. Uh, let's start the introduction of the UBI. Let's start talking about the Great Reset. It's almost like they, they got, they got a, a, you know, something, a directive telling them to hurry up. But, uh, but so, so the plan's been in place for a long, long time. But, but these days, it seems like everything has been ramped up. So it's an interesting question from Dean here because this is something that I've pondered for many years and economists I've read books on economic cycles and economists and authors have always claimed that the U S debt house of cards, the crash is just around the corner and the dollar collapse is just around the corner, but somehow the pyramid scheme keeps enlarging and this is I've, I've been reading these books since i was a teenager it's, it's always been predicted do you think that a dollar crash is imminent uh, i do but i also agree that, that that it has been written about for a long long time it's been speculated about and it's not it's not that the people writing about it a, for a while ago were necessarily even wrong it's just that they've come up with their assessment is correct that the dollar should have collapsed by now, but the Fed comes up with new and inventive ways to prolong it. We have quantitative easing, which is money printing, quantitative easing, one, two, three, four, you know, QE infinity, as they said. Now they're, the Fed is starting to monetize debt by starting to buy corporate, buy, I mean, they're getting into all of these uh, areas of finance that they have no mandate to be involved in and that we never thought they would get into. So the people that were writing books about, the collapse of the dollar, you know, 20 years ago, they weren't actually even wrong. I mean, based on their assessment, it should be collapsed. It's just that there's been new scams created that have kept this thing going longer and longer. I, Jeff and I, when we wrote this book, one of the things that we, we think is, is, um, is, is very realistic as a, as a outcome is the dollar being depegged as the world's reserve currency. That can happen. That will be a sort of death of the dollar. It will at least throw it off, you know, throw the value of the dollar off substantially and almost overnight too. So, so will that then change the relationship that the world has with the dollar? Yeah, of course, there's two things that can do that. The being de There's multiple things, but two, two main things. 
being depegged as the world's reserve currency and the loss of the petrodollar arrangement that the United States currently has. So if those things happen or when those things happen, and I think they're both coming soon, um, we will see the dollar no longer treated as this, uh, you know, as the last safe haven for a lot of other currencies that, that when they have problems with their currency or they have hyperinflation, like Venezuela or, or Zimbabwe or places like that, where do they, what do they use? They use the US dollar uh, as, as to, to try to bridge that gap until their currency can get sorted out. But there will come a day when the US dollar will not be safe. And we're seeing that push recently with the Fed and talking about the Fed coin and talking about this push into crypto. And that's really where Jeff Berwick uh, takes over in this book because his background is in crypto. He was in Bitcoin at $3. You know, I mean, he's, he, he's an early adapter to these things and he understands uh, the relationship and where that can go. And, 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 and cryptocurrencies can be both things. They could be a savior and they could be the nail in the coffin too, because some of them are not as private as others. And so we have to keep that uh, in mind as well. But it's it's a it's a fascinating topic that that, that you know where the dollar goes and why hasn't it collapsed already? Because by all logical and monetary indicators, uh, it should have. It really should have. But they but they keep they, there's so many tricks that they use. We don't even know how many dollars are in existence. You know, the Federal Reserve doesn't get audited. It hasn't been audited. And and now there's a a component that Catherine Austin Fitz and Dr. Mark Skidmore from Michigan State uncovered, which is this missing, the missing $21 trillion that the Defense Department uh, sucked off, sucked away, sucked off, I mean, whatever, uh, uh, in, in conjunction with HUD, uh, uh, Housing and Urban Development component. And that's like only two branches of United States government. There's like 20 plus other ones that could be factored into it. They created a new thing called FASB 56, which made it so that, that you can't even account, you can't even do a government audit on their books anymore because they've been able to decla- uh, uh, classify all the numbers. So you go look at their uh, at their books and it's just black, it just black lines through everything. Like, what, what am I going to do with this? So now they've taken money laundering and all of this to a new level. So Yes, the dollar should have been dead by now. But as long as you have very creative, smart people running these, these scams, they're going to be looking for new and inventive ways to, uh, to hide what they're actually doing. Outlaw wants to know if you've watched Eyes Wide Shut and your perspective on it. Yes, I've watched it. Uh, I'd really like to see the missing uh, chunk of, of, of footage that didn't make it into the movie. I'm sure that was, that was interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a terrifying look at what is speculated to happen at the highest levels of of high society, and I use that term high society very loosely because these are the worst types of people in the world. But um, you know, look, I don't have any firsthand evidence of the Rothschild type parties, but I've read enough, I I, I you know, to know that that that's a thing. So yeah, I've seen the movie. It, it's it it's is it a warning? Is it a is it is it was it Stanley Kubrick um, sending a, a one last warning? I don't know. Kevin has asked, does Charlie believe the NIST explanation for 9-11? <laughs> no. Uh, you can look at the cover of the book. The cover of the book is is World Trade Center Seven wrapped with an American flag. I've had um 
Richard Gage on my show. Uh, I've been, in, I've interacted with Richard. At, I, I got seated next to him at, some, at, at, at a friend's wedding of all places. I've had long conversation with Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. They have financed a study from the University of Anchorage, uh, University of Alaska at Anchorage that looked into the NIST report. They spent four years running it through their computer simulations. And, and what NIST showed in their computer modeling is a mathematical, scientific, and engineering impossibility. They're totally compromised. Their view on what happened to the World Trade Center buildings is 100% a lie. They're instructed to lie by people that find it very easy to lie. And what Richard Gage and his group have done is actually plug it into the models and they show that there's no way for it to work. Matthew is asking, what do you think of the new Chinese trade agreement? Uh, I don't know which one. I'm not, I'm not sure, Matthew. I'm not sure about which one in particular. Okay, please expand on that then, Matthew, if you want us to um answer that question properly. there's a, i know there's a lot going on with the with the with the belt and road uh, initiative which is running through uh south asia and africa and places like that i mean i know that china's relationship with all those countries has been uh rather warm as they work to to put this in place but they're um they're they're exerting a, an empire type relationship with this as well. I mean, they're, they're, they're not looking to put tons of money into this for nothing. They want something out of it as well. So Tristan has asked, should we be worried about NATO in the NWO? Yes. Yes. You should always be worried about NATO. NATO runs a, a think tank called the Atlantic Council. They put out a magazine called The Atlantic, and they use that as a propaganda piece to try and shape reality. I would suggest that these um, social media companies, the Alphabets and Facebook, Twitters uh, of the world, they, well, in conjunction with the, with the mainstream corporate media, they are all members of the Atlantic Council. They get their marching orders from these non-governmental organizations. And the Atlantic Council, like I said, is NATO. And they will tell these country or companies uh, what to do. Well, they'll tell countries too, as well, what to do and how to behave and what's coming. So they're very dangerous. They're, they're involved in this. And that is, they are a, a component of this new world order. Now, I know that the first time people hear new world order, they they roll their eyes and think that it's conspiratorial and, and, and all that. And I, and I look, I fully understand that, but guys like George HW Bush mentioned in on camera, uh, the new world order term over 200 times during his four years in office, you can find visual video records of everybody talking about it. The Pope, the queen, Prince Charles, John Kerry, you, you name it. Bono, all these guys talking about the new world order. So it's not our term for them. It's their term for themselves. So when, when that question is, you know, about NATO slash NWO, that new world order component is very real, even though they would like you to think that that is just the, uh, you know, reserved for tinfoil hat people. Monkey Snyder's asked, what do you think about Boris Johnson just announcing a huge amount of spending to be going on weapons. I guess that ties into what you said earlier about the perpetual military spending. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a normal thing. That's a, you know, Obama spent uh, or sold 
you know, billions and billions of dollars of arms to the Saudis, which they then used on Yemen, which is one of the poorest countries in the entire world. So Boris Johnson doing weapons deals is nothing new. Um, there's a long history of that, of, you know, companies like BAE Systems being involved in, in that. The, the, the blurring between a guy like Boris Johnson and the arms industry, uh, I mean, that's a match made in heaven because, the you know, you talk about a, uh, uh, an industry with no soul. You talk about a prime minister with no soul. What a great fit. You know, they should get together and go have tea or something. <laughs> he says sopping his tea. As I'm sipping my tea. Exactly. I mean, I, 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 not to be a hypocrite or anything, but. Hugh Kelvin Morgan has asked, do you think there is a massive reset coming whereby we will wake up one morning and all our bank accounts will be zeroed? I hope that. Man, I'll tell you, it's, I mean, it's kind of possible. And, and let me tell you why. Because um, we put it, we did a section in the book about Cyprus, the banks in Cyprus. And they woke up one morning and there was a bank holiday. And, uh, and, and Gerald Salente talks about bank holidays, you know, it, but it's, it's when your money, your money goes on a vacation, but didn't invite you, you know, <laughs> it's when it closed the banks down. Now, in the case of Cyprus, they closed the banks down. You couldn't get your money in or out. You couldn't do anything with it. And then they, they, they did a, a hair, you know, a haircut, a bail in for, for, for that. And it didn't happen. It didn't, it didn't hurt every account, but it was accounts over a certain amount. They had a, a percentage of their deposits taken because the banking system in Cyprus became insolvent overnight, whether or not that was true or not, who knows, but, but that's what they, that's what they said. They froze all the accounts. They took a percentage of everybody's uh, money out of their bank account and kept it. Now, in, in, in the United States, people might be shaking their heads going, well, that'll never happen to us. Oh, but it will. And the reason why, well, I should say it could, I'm not going to say it will, but it could because when you put your money into a bank account, I'm not sure if this is the same in, in the UK, but it is in, in America. When you put your money into the bank account, you, you open up a new account, you put your money in, you think it's your money in your account. Technically what it is, is it's the bank's money and you become an unsecured creditor of that money. You become in a bad position for it. So if, they're, if the bank manager of your local small bank decides he wants one day on a Friday afternoon, he wants to rob the vault, take all the money out and disappear with it. There's a, a company in place called the, there's an agency called the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which will make you whole, make all of those uh, bank account owners in that little bank whole for the money that was stolen by this guy. They'll go back in and, and make sure that you're, because there's insurance on it. But they only have enough money to cover about 2% of deposits system-wide. So if there's a systemic bank collapse, uh, you're not going to be able to get your money from the FDIC. That insurance policy you think you have, they don't have the money for it. Oh, and by the way, even if they did, it's not your money. It's the bank's money. You're an unsecured creditor. So if the bank is insolvent, you're out of luck. If the bank is solvent, but they're in, in a little bit of a bind, you're still not even next in line. It's like the bondholders are in line before you. So, so you're in a really bad situation. So the question is, is it possible to wake up one day and have, and have your bank account or have everybody's bank account be at zero? Yeah, it's possible, probably unlikely. But just remember that it is, it is the way the system is set up 
it is possible for you to go wake up in the morning and for have your bank account say $0. And then you go down to the bank and threaten the bank uh, manager and have, and he'll say, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's our money. And he'd be right. So it's a really weird situation. You're getting some questions that are tied into what you're talking about right now. So Lottie has said, couldn't they just keep printing more money? Of course, they can keep printing more money, but the more, but the more money that's out there, the less value each unit of currency has. So that's why they disguise things. Like they try to not tell you how much money they're printing. And that's why Alan Greenspan had that quote where he said, you know, listen, like we don't have to tell the government anything. We're, we're, we don't fall under those sorts of, uh, you know, they don't have the ability to, to set our policy. So they'll try and hide as much money as they can. But at some point you wind up with the hundred trillion dollar note of Zimbabwe, which, um, which I have seen, I have seen, one. You know, that's, that's what they do. And, but, but the problem is fiat currency. When you create money out of thin air, loan it into existence with interest attached to it, you are creating a house of cards just be based on the system itself. It doesn't matter whether it's in good hands or bad hands. At some point, the system is, 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 is dysfunctional and it will collapse. And that's of course where we're, where we're headed. Like the hyperinflation of Germany almost hundred years ago. For sure. Bud Lust has asked, will there be an end to property rights and inheritance? Well, if the World Economic Forum has any say in it, there will be. They talk about that. There's a slideshow that made a lot of headlines and kind of uh, went viral last week, which is, which is something that the World Economic Forum put out that, that was, it was a story that said, uh, it's 2030, you own nothing and you've never been happier. And it talks about how they want this system where nobody owns anything. It's all just on a, a rental system or a gig economy or things like that. Uh, they would like that. They would, they would very much like a, a situation where nobody owns anything. They, if, you, if, you, if you keep in mind that the program that they are aiming for are kings and serfs, then you know everything you need to know about whether or not you're going to have property. Why are you going to be able to own things? Well, did the serfs own anything or did they just use the king's shovels, you know, to, to, to garden, you know, to farm the, the, the land and do things like that. So that's where they want to take us. Now, wh whether or not you actually own anything, will it really matter? I mean, what will you own? You won't own your freedom. You won't own your sovereignty. You won't own control of your own body. So you won't technically own the important things anyway, unfortunately. So we're getting near the two hour marks. So we're probably going to wind the questions down now. Charlie's been very generous with his time. So here's the final one then from Hugh, who's asked, can you see a political Cold War number three coming? Yeah. Yeah. I think we, I think we see... Well, in, in America, we've seen this for the last four years with Russia's trying to steal the election and interfere in the election and things like that. So we're starting to see that. Cold, the Cold War was, was, was great for the military industrial complex. That's when it started because they need to keep everybody fear. They need to do two things, either start wars or keep everybody fearful that there may be a war. So if there's not... I mean, look, we've got enough wars going on around the world right now that, that America has been involved in that we don't, need, we don't need a new Cold War. But in the event that, let's say, Afghanistan closes up and Iraq closes up and things like that, then for sure we'll see, we'll see a, a, you know, a political Cold War that will 
more than likely drag China into it. I mean, what's better than having one enemy in Russia than having two enemies, China and Russia, so we can keep everybody twice as scared and twice as dependent on the military industrial complex or the military information terror complex as we've uh, uh, added. So it, it it's devious. It requires you to think about these things in a different way. Uh, whereas we we're we're peaceful, not looking for war types of people. Most of you know the people that I know in my life aren't aren't looking for war, but these governments are. They're constantly looking for it. So it should be of no surprise to people that uh, when you hear this the war drums beating for war with Iran, we're certainly seeing that, and that is that is less a factor of Iran being an actual threat and more a factor of America's got a couple of allies in the region that are very scared of Iran. And so, you know, it, it works better if that, if Iran is not this solid, stable country, it works better if it's balkanized and chopped up into, into, into four different smaller pieces that aren't able to pose a threat to our allies in the Middle East. So, so whether these wars are real or just imagined and on the drawing board in the form of a cold war, uh, I think we can expect that that the, the fear of that never goes away. It's extremely effective to create, um, you know, us this belief that we need a stronger military to protect us from all of these enemies out there. Well, the truth is, we wouldn't have so many enemies if we weren't out there indiscriminately bombing the crap out of these countries. You know, we were creating terrorists based on our action, you know, people that didn't care one way or the other, but they talk about people in Yemen, like they give a damn about the United, like they're thinking about America at all, or they're thinking about let's become terrorists so we can get America. They didn't care about that at all. But once their village has been destroyed by bomb strikes, guess what? Now they're interested in that. So we create this, these problems. And of course they know that they, the, the military big wigs know that. And they, they like that because it keeps constant conflict and conflict keeps everybody on the reservation and fearful and dependent on government and dependent on the media to tell them what's happening and dependent on, on the military to keep them safe and all these things. So it's a, it's a dirty, it's a dirty little scheme. It's not the first time, you know, we're not the first group of people it's been used on. We won't be the last. So buckle up. But, but I, I will tell you this, that, that, that as dark as this book gets for discussing some of the impending things that we see, we do end it on a very positive note. Uh, we're at a point where things are going to change. And I would say that things, a lot of things need to change. It's, it's, it's important that we make sure that the, whoever is in charge of presenting us the new version of reality uh, are people that we like and trust and, and respect, not this current batch of maniacs at the World Economic Forum. They don't, they don't like, they don't want what we want. Um, there's going to be new opportunities presenting themselves. So we're, we're, we're at an interesting time. So, so wake your friends and family up to this. If, this is, if these are topics that you know very well and you understand, um, buy the book for somebody in your family that doesn't that doesn't really know that. And I'll tell you one thing I've learned from promoting my book, The Octopus in, in America, well, all over the place, but in America and the UK, people in the UK buy books, they read. <laughs> Especially during lockdowns. Especially during lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. If we could only get America, we're, we're working on the audio book for all the illiterate Americans, sorry. <laughs> it's in the process, I'll let you know when it's done. But but I, I mean, I'm joking, obviously, but, but, but the, but the UK does, does 
tend to, to buy buy books. So if there if this is something that appeals to you and you understand these things and you think, well, I already got all this, I, I get it. Great, spread the word because what we need is an awakening. We need people to realize a couple of things. We need them to realize that you're not. It's not little old me. You guys, we're all strong when we come together. Uh, remember, do not comply with these unjust laws uh, and put pressure on these maniacs. You see how easily they fold. You see what they did in, uh, in, in some of these countries in Denmark when they said, we're going to make mandatory vaccine. People went crazy with pots and pans and stormed it. And they backed, backtracked off of that. Uh, so we have the power. It, we just need to come together and collectively use it and focus our, our energy, not on fighting with each other. We can, there'll be time for that later. But we got to focus on on who is prioritized, who is really the most dangerous people that we're facing. And it is the government. It's the mainstream media. It's these big bankers. And it's this push for the global reset. Don't fall for the slick marketing campaign. It's designed to make you think that the grass is greener over there. But man, it's like a gun. It's a gun in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Change in and of itself isn't a bad, a great reset isn't a bad thing. It depends on who is holding it in their hands. And the people in Davos are the wrong people to be in charge of this. Absolutely brilliant, Charlie. I can't thank you enough. We've thank only you. touched on uh, a few of the chapters from your book this evening, but we've covered so much ground. I'm sure the people uh, watching this want to get the book and read the rest of the content and i'd also be delighted if you were willing to come back and we could cover some more of the chapters um, sure. and, and and do a part two to this because it's been really really well received i've learned so much tonight as i always do when i speak to you and i uh, can't thank you enough so if you're watching this all of charlie's links will be in the description box below this video once the live stream's ended and please go down support him on twitter where he was banned from a previous account and his book is worldwide on amazon also, huge thank you to all of our new subscribers, rapidly approaching 600K. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner. And huge thank you to people who go down in the description box and check out our socials, donation links, and our playlist. We've got over 400 videos now on the Epstein case. Um, so hours and hours of endless content to entertain you um, during lockdown. So thank you very much for watching. Take care out there. Cheers from London. Thanks again, Charlie. Thank you, Sean.